in the book of James. So if you would open your Bibles to the book of James, um, page 1132, that's my Bible, so I don't know where yours is at. Um, but if you would open to the book of James, um, it is great again, as always, to gather with you in Jesus uh, this morning. And we are, as always, being formed by, and as a body, being formed by the Word of God. And so uh, our, our message this morning is titled, Tested Faith. And we are going to begin a, a new study in the book of James. And so over the course of the next nine weeks or so, and I say or so, and it's a good thing I say or so, because I had planned to do uh, verse 1 through 8 this morning, and in my prep I only stopped at verse 4. Uh, I had too much, uh, and I want to keep you guys awake. So, um, yeah, so the next nine weeks or so, probably ten, um, we're going we're gonna to take our messages from this uh, text of Holy Scripture. And so this morning we're going to pray, then we will read the text, and then we'll make some observations and some applications from James chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. So let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the grace that saved us. We come to you this morning with a desire for grace to form and conform us into the image of your Son. Through trials and by the Spirit-given Word, we are being conformed into the, light, to the likeness of your Son who saved us. We ask, Lord, that you would fill in us anything that is lacking. We desire to hear wise counsel from your Word from the book of James this morning. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and fertile hearts to live according to the infallible Word of God that we hear this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So let us begin by reading James, the letter of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the Spirit-given Word of God for us this morning. Thanks be to God. So the regenerated, born-again, blood-bought believer in Christ Jesus has been given eternal life, and been given, I love that we sang this, mo this morning, Be Thou My Vision, because as we uh, think about this, the regenerated, born-again, blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ has been given uh, not only eternal life, but has also been given an eternal vision, and a vision to live for eternity as we live out God's reality here in our temporal world. So you know that there's this natural tension, right, between the temporal life as we uh, are bombarded with all the things of life, there's this tension between what is already attained for us in Christ Jesus. Because as you remember from Ephesians, it tells us that we have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is ours to claim now. But we live in this temporal tension between what has already been accomplished for us and what we have yet to fully attain and realize, right? And we live in this tension, in this reality right now. So this morning, I want us to begin to think about that tension. And I'm going to read to you a Puritan prayer 
from the Valley of Vision, and it sums up this tension so beautifully and so poetically. The Valley of Vision. The Lord high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see Thee in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold Thy glory. Learn, let me learn by paradox, that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that to be broken in heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. See, this prayer sums up the message of the letter of James pretty well, I think. The genuineness of our faith is being tested in our temporal world and is working in us the practical reality of our transformation into the image of Christ. And that is, that happens provided that we remain steadfast through the many trials that are coming our way. I want to pray one more time, if that's okay, as we dive in further. Father God, I, I do ask for grace that you would give us this eternal vision. Give us grace that we might pray, that we might remain steadfast in your word, that we might gain practical wisdom as we endure the testing of our faith in this life, Lord. We need your grace and your mercy and your strength in these times. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we examine the letter of James, let us look at the first part of verse 1 more closely, and we will dive in. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as a student of the Bible, which I hope all of you are and are becoming or desire to be at least, we need to read the book of James with a different set of tools than we did, say, the book of Nehemiah. In a historical narrative, when we read that story, we see uh, crises come, and we see them resolved, and that gives us the aim of what Nehemiah was driving at. We can see God's aim in those passages. But as we, uh, we, we can look at like the plot line and characters, we're looking for these conflicts, we're looking for resolutions in the story, because we were reading a narrative story, right? So it reads differently. But when we look at James, James is a letter. And so biblical letters have usually a form. They begin with a description of the author, um, and then a description of his intended audience, and then there's a body of writing that states the purpose, and then kind of at the end, there's a, a salutation. Well, as we look at the book of James, you'll see that James begins as letters do, but it offers no salutation at the end. It gives a description of the author and the audience, but the book of James begins like a letter, and then... It is a series of sermons. It reads more like a series of sermons. He gives his opening statement about who he is and who they are, and then he gives sermon after sermon after sermon, and it just sort of 
ends in that way. But it's, it's all tied to a central theme. Every sermon in uh, the next nine to ten weeks or so uh, has a central interconnected theme. And that interconnected theme is right here in this first sermon, and that is uh, steadfast faith. So in the opening address, James identifies himself as the human instrument of God in penning this letter. Well, James is likely the eldest of Jesus' half-brothers, as James is listed first among the siblings when we read in Matthew 13.55. According to the Gospel of John, James was one who did not initially believe in Jesus. He had a misunderstanding of what Christ's mission was. By the grace of God, though, he came to faith. He came to faith when Christ appeared to him after Jesus was resurrected in 1 Corinthians 15.7. Later, James leads the Jerusalem congregation, and he oversees the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. Paul refers to James as a pillar in the church in Galatians 2.9. And now James uh, stayed steadfast all the way till the end, and he was martyred for his faith in Christ about A.D. 62. So as we look here at the opening address, James, who was known in that time as James the Just or James the Righteous, he gives, that's not his introduction, is it? His introduction is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he identifies himself. He doesn't say James, the half-brother of Jesus and a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says James. He doesn't say James the Just, James the Righteous. He gives no personal resume for who he is, no familial connection to Jesus, but simply, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Progress in our Christian life, I think, can be measured by the degree to which we have shed our personal identities and embraced the fullness of who we are becoming in Christ Jesus. A lot of this passage in this first part that we're talking about this morning is about that, is about finding our central identity in who Christ has made us. That's the idea we'll, we'll, we will uncover uh, deeply, the idea of the word steadfast. But progress in our life is about how much we have embraced, really, our true identity in Christ Jesus, Right? You can look around the world and people are, are, are trying to find identities in skin color. They're talking about differences in one skin over another skin. They're talking about differences in political ideologies over one ideology. True identity will not be found until you find your identity in Jesus Christ. Not in a political ide ideology. Not in a skin color. All of our identity is tied to the person of Jesus Christ. Then you will find out who you really are right? Then you will find out who you are. So as we are making progress, isn't that what we are doing in the Christian life, friends? As we are making progress in the Christian life, aren't we shedding ourselves and putting on more of Him? We are identifying ourselves as Him, with Him in us. And so that is my personal prayer for us as a church, is that we would be so satisfied with Christ that we would be like James and we would seek no other identity than to be known as Jeff, Stephanie, 
Matt, Richard, that we would be known, we would say, this is who we are, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I am. I'm just Jeff, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's progress, friends, if we get there. That's the progress we need to be making, right? Joe, he could say, I am Joe. I am the facilities manager of Yamhill County. Or he could say, I'm Joe. I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I am. Not what I do, but who I am, right? So I want to turn our attention now uh, to the audience, from the author to the audience. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So this letter is arguably the oldest writing in the New Testament. It has frequent references to the Torah, to the law. Uh, he has no mention of the concerns that were brought at the Council of Jerusalem. So it's not like this letter that he's writing to, to correct the church, right, of, of the things that were brought up in the council. Um, it's estimated to have been written in the mid-40s A.D. So think about that. It being that early, it was really close to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was written right close to that. So having been written so close to the suffering of Christ and the resurrection, it, it comes as no surprise to me that James addresses those who have been persecuted and those who have been displaced because of their faith. That is James' primary audience here. The, the audience are Jewish Christians who likely have had contact with him near or around Jerusalem at some time of near their conversion, and that these are those who have fled. They were scattered outside of Palestine, likely, they say, in Syria and in Asia Minor. These were those that had been persecuted and marginalized because of their faith. And they were still struggling, even in their current state, with, with more persecution and with poverty. He writes this letter to impart to them confidence and hope during these ongoing trials. James writes to the tested, to assure them that testing will continue, but endure this testing with hope. He ends the opening address with this idea, greetings. You could pass that by. But greetings in the Greek is karyon. And in the Greek this means rejoice or be glad. Rejoice or be glad. It might be as if James was saying to them, brothers, in your trouble... There is reason to be glad. And in our trouble, there is reason to be glad. Because there's a purpose in testing. He's going to come and tell them, there's a purpose in testing. There's reason to be glad. No matter how hard it is, no matter what our circumstances are, there is a reason to be glad. As we think about our message this morning, the, the bulk of the idea is this, church, the genuineness of your faith will be tested. The testing of your faith will prove whether it's genuine. So i got to say it two ways because, uh, you know, the key to learning is repetition. And it's also been said that repetition is the key to learning, right? So if we say it again and we say it a different way, it helps us grasp this idea is that the genuineness of our faith as a church, as individuals, will be tested. The testing of your faith will prove out in your life whether or not it is indeed genuine. As these tests come, it'll prove out whether or not your faith is genuine. Well, 2020 
has been a time of increased testing in our nation, and 2020 has been a time of a particular testing in our church, hasn't it? COVID-19 and the restrictions for gathering as a church has proved out just what I thought it would when it first happened. When it first came, I thought two things will probably come out of this. Some of us will press in more closely to Christ. Some of us will grow in diligence to the ministry of the Word. Some of us will grow in dependence on prayer. Some of us will grow in care for our neighbor. Some of us will grow in love for our church family. And then I say this, not to be harsh, just to be honest. Look around. Look around you here this morning. Some have become entirely absent. Excuses have been made. Reasons have been given. And few of them are valid. Because I predicted, and I believe that it's true, that when pressured to be genuine, we would shrink. Some would shrink away. Some would press in, and some would shrink away. Because the testing of faith proves out whether or not that faith is genuine. Hardship comes when effort and perseverance are required of some. It proves out that they just cannot be bothered. It's too hard. There's too much pressure. We just cannot be bothered. The testing of our faith proves the genuineness of it. Thomas Akempis writes this, Every man's virtue is best revealed in a time of adversity. Adversity does not weaken a man, but it reveals what sort he is. Adversity reveals what sort you are. And that is the gist of James' letter. Is that trials are coming and they will reveal just what sort you are. Whether or not you indeed have genuine faith. Let us read verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, the Christian will be marginalized. The Christian will be maligned in this life. Through trials, through testing, the Christian man, the Christian woman, the Christian child will be made. They will be made, they will be formed, they will be conformed and transformed into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's just like the hymnist writes, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Right? It is grace that will lead us home. We are dependent people on grace because of this pressure. And we don't go out looking for trials. See, Trials, it's a great, trials are a good thing. And that's what he's telling them. Count it all joy. Trials are for your good. They are transforming you into the likeness of his son, ultimately. And they are working something in you, steadfastness of faith, right now, right? But we need not go out and try to find trials so that we can be transformed, okay? Because trials will come. In the fallen world that we live in, trials come every day. Right? Trials will come at us. We don't need to look for them. But they will certainly come. Jesus promised that in John 16, 33. 
In this world there will be trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus even then wanted us to take a long view of the trouble in our temporary time, right? He wanted us to have an eternal view of the temporary trouble. In this world, temporary, there will be trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the temporary. By my death and resurrection, I have overcome the temporary. You who believe in Christ have overcome the world with Him. We are overcomers who believe by faith. But for the Christian, trials prove productive. They accomplish the good of God's will in us. Trials produce in the born-again, blood-bought believer in Christ this one word, truth, virtue. Trials bring us Christian virtue. They bring us virtue. The Christian life is to be a man, to be a woman, to be a child of virtuous character. There, there is a virtue that is afforded only to the born-again, blood-bought believer in Christ. There is a virtue that is only given to the grace-given, chosen people of God. And that is this. Steadfastness in the biblical sense of steadfastness. It is a gift only given. It is a virtue only given to the born-again, blood-bought believer in Jesus. Because when Paul, I mean, when James talks about steadfastness here, he's, he's talking about a steadfast faith and trust in God. A steadfast trust in the Father. An unwavering commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. That He's talking about that steadfastness. That virtue, that virtue is given only to the born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And steadfastness is the virtue upon which all of the character that God wants to form in us is built. It's a foundational virtue. First, it is, is a steadfast, unwavering trust in God. That is a, a virtue given to us by grace, by God. And then if we remain steadfast in that, that virtue leads to more virtue as we are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. I'm trying to get it to make sense. It, it, is, it is this idea that steadfastness, if it is only given to the born again, then what is it? What, what exactly is steadfastness? Well, steadfastness is uh, many things. It means a lot more than just what we maybe on the surface think of steadfastness. When we first think of steadfastness, you probably think of um, unwavering, grounded, single-minded, focused, steady, maybe. It's that, and it's more. Steadfastness is an enduring trust in God. It is patient belief that in a world that is contrary, we trust in God. Steadfastness is an unwavering endurance to keep the deposit of faith that God has given you. Steadfastness is this. Ultimately, it is intestinal fortitude. It's guts to remain Faithful when trials, tests, and even when abundance and blessing come. It's intestinal fortitude. It's guts. That is steadfastness. It is the character of a person that is rooted in God Himself. Character that is grounded in faith. Uh, 
character that is grounded in trust in God and His holy word. The psalmist writes comparing the way of the ones that are called righteous by God who remain night and day steadfast in His word and the unregenerated unregenerated person. And he does this, the psalmist says this in Psalm 1 verses 3 through 4. To the born again, he says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Of the unregenerate, he said, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Trials and tests prove the genuineness of our conversion. So I ask this morning, will you wilt under the pressures of this life? Or will you rather desire that this the tests that come to us that, that they would prove that our uh, character is real, that, that who we have become has been wrought in God's grace, and that our salvation, the things that we confess with our mouth, are indeed genuine, that reveals that we have some integrity and intestinal fortitude in times of trouble, that we remain faithful as we face difficulties. I ask us this morning, what sort are you? Tested faith reveals reality. It reveals the virtue of the born again, namely steadfast, unwavering faith in the God who saved us. Notice in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, James doesn't see this virtue of steadfast faith as the end in itself. He kind of sees it as... Um, trials come, that steadfastness is strengthened by more virtue, by more steadfastness, by um, other virtues being added to the blood-bought believer in Jesus, such that uh, ultimately they, there's this steadfast, unwavering faith is a foundational character. It is like a foundational virtue. Steadfast, unwavering faith is a steadfast, foundational character upon which the perfect character of Christ is being formed in the believer. That's what he's after here, is the perfect character of Christ is being formed in the believer. And the first virtue is steadfast faith. Count it all joys, brothers, because you know that when trials come, they produce in you steadfastness. And then he follows this at the end of, of verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may lack nothing. See, he sees, he sees steadfastness as, as a great virtue and a great gift given by God's grace, but it's not the end. It's kind of the beginning, but it's kind of the continual thing, right? Steadfastness, uh, we can waver tomorrow, but we need to return to steadfast faith again and again and again, right? So he sees this as a building of more and more of Christ's character that is added to us. See, the ultimate end of the measure of the genuineness of our faith is what? It's perfection. Can you think about that as a believer? God says, I want you to remain steadfast in faith, but my ultimate end is that you be perfect. That's the ultimate goal, is that you would be perfect. Well, James here says, in order to achieve perfection, let steadfastness have its way in you. Remain faithful to trust and trust yourself to God 
when trials and troubles come. And God will add this virtue to you. And he'll keep adding virtue upon virtue upon virtue until one day you are perfected in Christ, till you are conformed into the image of his son. Well, we can look sometimes at uh, maturity and think that, well, maturity is just about a maturing of my character. And that tests maybe make us more mature. They maybe grow us up. They do that. But more than maturing our character, tested faith rounds out our character, right? As more and more parts of, of, of God's virtue are added to our righteous character, that is, that as virtue is added, uh, we become more and more uh, conformed to the likeness of Christ who is our righteousness. We more closely image Him as we remain steadfast in faith and God continues to add character upon character to us. Perfection is the full-blown character of righteousness. It is the virtue of the righteous man. Well, church, the goal of our preaching and the goal of our gathering is a longing in, in my heart as a, as a pastor is that we would be perfected in the image and the character of Jesus when he returns. That is what we want for each other, I hope. I hope that's what you want for your brothers and sisters, that you would present them as perfect and mature in Christ to the full measure of the statue of Jesus, statue of Jesus Christ, right? It is that we would present one another to our God mature, that we would present ourselves unified in Jesus, that through many dangers, toils, and snares, our faith would prove out to be genuine. As Paul says in Philippians 3, he says this, not that I have already uh, obtained this or that I am already perfected, but I press on to make it my own. We press on to make the righteousness of Christ our own. Why? Well, Paul says in Philippians 3, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on to make the perfection of Christ my own because Christ has made me his. It's not like we are trying to earn favor from God and we're trying to behave in such a way that he will love us. No. It is because I am loved by him and he is perfect. And I know that he is making me perfect and I have been made his. He has called me his. I press on to make what he wants for me my own, to possess what it is that God has called me to, and that is perfection, to be formed into the image of Christ. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true, this is steadfastness, to what we have already attained. Right? Let us hold to what we've already attained. And what have we attained? We have attained the righteousness of Christ in Jesus. We have attained this virtue of steadfast faith and trust in God. Before our conversion, who did we trust? Before being converted to Christ, who did you trust? You trusted only you, right? You were the center of your universe. Everything revolved around you. And more and more, as we are growing in this virtue of steadfastness, we are removing ourselves from the center of our world and identifying ourselves more with the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Steadfast faith. 
Count it all joy, church, when you are thought of as a fool for your faith in Jesus. Count it all joy, friends, when you are passed over at work because you can't participate in the things that your co-workers do. Count it all joy when you who are students in school are outcast from your friends because you desire to remain pure. You desire to remain separate from the community that is filled with debauchery and sinfulness. Count it all joy when you are cast out by them. Cast it all, count it all joy, church, because the testing of our faith is producing the perfection of Christ in us. But it's producing it in us as we remain steadfast in the hope of eternal life in Him. That's the first virtue of a Christian life, is to remain steadfast in hope and faith in Jesus. Isn't it? It is the first virtue. Man, I would I long to just be more faithful. Don't you guys? I mean, as you think about the times that you waver, if you think about the one characteristic you would love for the Lord to have to 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 right now right for you that you have wronged is to make us more faithful. God, I waver. I'm like a wind at the sea that's getting tossed around. I need your steadfastness in me that I remain faithful. That is a, that is a character for us to long for, is to remain in steadfast faith, steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to ask ourselves, do I really believe it? Right? When our faith wavers, we have to ask ourselves, I think we should all ask ourselves that. I don't care if you've been walking with the Lord for 35 years or 35 minutes. I think that you should often ask yourselves, when you hear what it is that the born-again, blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ lives by, the faith that they are called to, in those moments, we ought to ask ourselves, is that me? We ought to stand in front of the mirror and go, is that me? Is that me? And when you look at the Scriptures, you'll understand, well, it's not dependent on me, thank God. Thank God it's not dependent on me. Thank God it, it is Christ's work in me and that He who saved me will not just save me for a little while, He saved me all the way to eternity. He saved me forever, right? But it is good for self-examination to understand, is that me? Do I need to grow in faith? Do I need to... Do I need that virtue of steadfastness instilled in me by the Lord? I think that's probably a great prayer for us, isn't it? In fact, I'm going to pray, and then we'll take a moment of silence, and then Joe will lead us in taking the Lord's Supper this morning. Well, Father, we do pray that you would uh, grow us in faith, that you would reinforce the virtue of steadfastness, of the intestinal fortitude to remain faithful in times of trouble. That we would know that in times of trouble, there is reason to be glad. The reason is, is that these trials produce in us a steadfast faith that will take us all the way till we reach the crown of glory, till we one day will be conformed into the perfect image of Jesus Christ, so, Lord, help us. We need your help to remain steadfast 
in our faith. We are grace-dependent people. We need your grace to enable us and empower us to remain faithful, Lord. As the world pulls and tugs and is contrary to our faith in every step, every where we go, Lord, we need your strength and your grace to enable us to remain steadfast. Help us, Lord, to examine ourselves to, to, to know whether we are genuinely in the faith or not. If one this morning is feeling, I don't know if I'm genuine in the faith, I pray this morning that you would grant him or her repentance. And that today they would come to you and say, Lord, I haven't acted in genuine faith. I am not genuine in, in my belief. I don't believe, Lord, that I have been converted. I need you to save me. And you know the Lord will not cast away anyone who comes to him because he has drawn them by his spirit. And so, Lord, we just pray for that person and for those people. We pray for ourselves, Lord, that you would grant us more and more grace. In Jesus' name, amen.